4: Throughout rock history, certain watershed years mark a shift in the way the music sounds and how we think about it. 1967 is a prime
3: example. I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. Forty-five years later, we look back at 1967 and the birth of the album as art. We also pay tribute to the legacy of Soul Train founder Don Cornelius. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago
4: and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news.
1: We're back with the Godfather James now and James, it's been a most exciting experience so far, and I know it's going to get heavier and heavier for the rest of the hour, and I just have to say that uh, just watching you, you're still the baddest out here. Oh, thank you very much.
2: I'm just trying to keep up with the Soul Train dance.
3: That is the baritone voice of Don Cornelius, the founder of Soul Train. Don Cornelius dead at the age of 75, apparently from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. What Dick Clark's American bandstand was to popular culture... In the 60s, I think Don Cornelius was to the culture in the 70s, 80s, and beyond. It all started in Chicago on the south side, very modest budget, so small of a budget that they couldn't afford color television cameras. They shot the initial <laughs> episodes in black and white. They had a dance floor about the size of your average living room, Jim. It was a very tiny show on a tiny budget. They thought, hey, maybe we'll get a few kids to, to watch after school in 1970. It turned out to be much bigger than that. Cornelius had his finger on the pulse of African-American culture and the civil rights movement in the 60s. He was not only a television reporter... He was also DJing at local clubs and house parties. And he said that this music needs a broader outlet to the community. We need to get this on television. We need to get this music on television, the performers, as well as the dancers. I think that was his most brilliant move, Jim. Shortly after news of
4: of Cornelius' death broke, we had Reverend Jesse Jackson on WBEZ here in Chicago. And he made the point that as much as the Freedom Riders and the civil rights movement, Don Cornelius was breaking down racial boundaries he was doing it with music not protest but but the result was the same
3: there were several aspects of the show jim uh, you mentioned the music obviously that was a huge part of it i mean the fact that for those initial shows that cornelius could call upon friends like curtis mayfield and the oj's and bb king to appear on the show certainly helped the ratings locally. There was no doubt about that. But there was also a much broader sense of of the show in terms of style, culture, and community, as you mentioned. The phrases that would pour out of Cornelius' mouth. He was a smooth guy. Come in and style a while. Peace, love, and soul. These these became catchphrases for the kids watching this show. Suddenly, they had a show for them. You know, Dick Clark's American Bandstand really ignored a lot of the culture and a lot of the music that they were paying attention to in the 60s and early 70s. Cornelius saw that as a niche that he could fill. You know, when Cornelius steps up there in an Afro hairdo, that sends a message to America into Chicago and said, it was cool. It was okay to do this. There was a Scrabble board up there with the the names of famous civil rights leaders. It was educating the people as they were dancing. And then there were those dancers. He found these kids on the street corners in the dance clubs that he was DJing. And said, you know, come on and you know, pop and lock on on my on my show. And some of them really went on interesting things. Walter Payton, the football player, was one of those dancers. <laughs> exactly. Rosie Perez, Jody Watley. We had people like MC Hammer on the show. A young Michael Jackson was a huge fan of the show. The moonwalk debuted on the show in the 1970s. I think Michael Jackson was paying attention to that a little bit. Yeah. And, and turned it into a national phenomenon. And also, we have to acknowledge what Cornelius did as a businessman. He was the pioneer in a lot of ways as the African-American power broker in a very white-oriented music industry at that point. He forged a partnership very early on with Johnson Products, another African-American owned business in Chicago, and built this empire that I really think served as a template for what L.A. Reid and and, and Sean Puffy Combs and Jay-Z would do decades later. So he was a pioneer on several levels. And finally, there was the music. The show really took off after Cornelius was able to call on that local talent that he brought in initially to the point where a huge national acts like James Brown and Aretha Franklin and Al Green were calling on him saying, I want to be on your show, man. Yeah. Uh, not only that, you had Elton John and David Bowie you know, wanting to be on the show, too. It really expanded its horizons and also its audience's view of what soul funk R&B could be in the 70s. I think the epitome, in many ways, of, of soul train at the height of its powers was in 1975, Barry White shows up on the show wearing a black velvet tux and bringing a 40-piece Orchestra, (laughs) larger than life in every way. Absolutely. So here's Barry White performing "You're the First, the Last, My Everything" in 1975 on Don Cornelius' Soul Train on Sound Opinions.
1: a tooth
4: That was the great Barry White with You're the First, The Last, My Everything from Soul Train, the song he performed in 75. Don Cornelius, Soul Train founder, dead at 75 years old.
2: There's something happening here, but what it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there Telling me i got to beware I think it's time we stop, children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down
3: You're listening to Sound Opinions, and for the remainder of the show, we're going to go back to 1967. Forty-five years later, that remains one of the most significant times in rock history. Still fascinating to both critics and fans. You know, just look at some of the events that unfolded in 67. You know, we had the Summer of Love, the youth culture antidote to the Vietnam War, and the civil rights struggle hitting its peak that year. We had Aretha Franklin, her coming out party as the Queen of Soul. Finally hooks up with Jerry Wexler, goes down to the South, begins recording her debut album for Atlantic Records, finishes it up in New York. We had the Monterey Pop Festival, which was the flowering of that generation, and really the coming out parties for an incredible number of major, major artists. Jimi Hendrix, Otis Redding, Janis Choplin, The Who, all made a huge splash at that one festival. And then listen to the albums that came out that year alone. The Doors making their debut and following it up with Strange Days, Jefferson Airplane with Surrealistic Pillow, Pink Floyd with the Piper at the Gates of Dawn, Love with Forever Changes, Cream with Disraeli Gears, The Rolling Stones with Their Satanic Majesty's Request, The Who with The Who Sell Out. The Velvet Underground and Nico, Procol Harem's debut, The Jimi Hendrix Experience. It was quite a year for new albums.
4: Greg, I think what those albums have in common is that we have rock artists looking at the album as a statement, as a grand conceptual concept. We are going to spend two shows in the next couple of weeks looking at 1967 as one of the watershed years in rock history. On this show, we're going to look at two elements of why 45 years on, this year stands as a landmark and its influence rings on. Two things, I think. The birth of the studio as an instrument – playing the recording studio, essential to making rock and roll, and the idea of the album as art. Now, as amateur historians, we know often when you're looking at a year that seems to have been critical, that year actually may have started a year or two earlier. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We had people moving towards the album as art and the studio as an instrument, the Beach Boys with Pet Sounds and the Beatles with Revolver in 1966. But 67's the year when the world at large suddenly seems to realize album as art recording
3: studio something is happening in rock and roll and everything is changing you had the uh, rise of the counterculture media really documenting it. I think that was a huge part of it Jim you know the emergence of Rolling Stone Paul Williams and Crawdaddy writing about this transition from the coin of the realm being that three minute single that 45 RPM record that you popped on in your turntable and danced around the living room to to sitting there With headphones on, listening to 20-minute sides of albums, in other words, this little journey with a beginning, a middle, and an end of four or five songs sequenced in a particular way to take you somewhere else, and you did it over the headphones. Absolutely.
4: And suddenly the recording studio and four track technology with the possibilities of overdubs was allowing you to go from black and white documentary filmmaking to Technicolor movie making for the big screen. That's the analogy that often has been used. Greg, there's an album we have not mentioned yet, but all discussion of 1967 eventually has to come down to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by the Beatles. did a show a while back about Revolver, saying, both of us, Revolver was the Beatles' masterpiece as far as its psychedelic phase. And Sgt. Peppers kind of was Beatles' baroque. To borrow a quote from Richard Goldstein, pioneering rock critic, famously reviewed that album in the New York Times. But Sgt. Peppers was important for a couple of reasons. You know, the Beatles are no longer touring. They stopped doing that with Revolver. They are beginning to base themselves entirely as an act, in the recording studio working at Abbey Road for as long as they want with producer George Martin and exploring what can be done with the studio.
2: Picture yourself in a boat on a river With tangerine trees and marmalade skies Somebody calls you, you answer quite slowly a Girl with kaleidos,
4: go by There remains a lot of debate, a lot of discussion among diehard Beatles fans and the countless Beatles authors about whether Sgt. Pepper's was conceived as a grand conceptual work or whether that was laid on it afterwards. You know, the idea of the Beatles playing this old time Salvation Army band that are playing in the village square on Sunday afternoon. I mean, they are the most influential, coolest band in the world, and the idea that they want to be this Victorian throwback is kind of odd at the birth of this new social consciousness, this new youth movement. But the Beatles were looking for a new identity, and they have said that becoming Sgt. Pepper's band freed them to go in new directions as opposed to being trapped into being the Beatles. For
2: the benefit of mystic high, there will be a show tonight on Trampoline. There. what a scene oh man the horsesops and got us lastly through a hogshead of real fire in this way mr gay will challenge the
4: world so we have just said Sar peppers is not the Beatles psychedelic masterpiece though it has some undeniably classic music Personally, I've always uh, had my mind blown By being for the benefit of Mr. Kite You cannot not love a day in the life
1: I read the news today, oh boy About a
4: But it's not the Beatles' best, despite the impact it had. I think we have to appreciate that. Langdon Winner, one of the pioneering writers for Rolling Stone, wrote that the closest Western civilization has come to unity since the Congress of Vienna in 1815 <laughs> was the week that Sergeant Peppers was released. The Congress of Vienna carved up Europe after the Napoleonic Wars, okay? What, what Langdon meant was that anywhere you went in the United States or Great Britain and in many other parts of the world, any window that was open where there was a stereo behind it, any car radio that was playing, any picnic laid out in the park, you heard Sergeant Peppers over and over and over again throughout the this fabled summer of love. Good morning, good morning, good morning,
2: good morning, good morning, good morning. Nothing to do to save his life, call his wife in. Nothing to say, but what a day, how's your boy been? Nothing to do, it's up to you. I've got nothing to say, but it's okay. Good
3: It illustrates your point, Jim. Consider that the Beatles spent less than 10 hours recording their debut album four years earlier, Meet the Beatles. For Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, nearly a year and over 700 hours in the recording studio. So suddenly, you had this element of self-consciousness creeping into the recording process. We know we're making something big and grandiose. We want it to be big and grandiose. And suddenly all this media attention is focused on it. That's why I think in many ways Sgt. Pepper is kind of memorialized as the beginning of the album era, even though in the year prior to it we had seen some major albums are already being made but not nearly as celebrated as this one by the beatles yeah well the stakes suddenly became higher you know the beatles did this thing
4: that that was perfect and held together in every way at least conceptually not perfect musically there was a cover you know there were lyrics printed there was there was connections between the songs they ran into one another the use of the studio was exquisite so now the album is art What can you do? And many of those bands on that list that you read off earlier are looking at what the Beatles had done, not only with Peppers, but the year before with Revolver, and they're saying, okay, album as art. You can't underestimate the recording studio, what was being done with George Martin and the Beatles at Abbey Road, but they weren't, again, The Only Ones. And that's where we're going to pick up after a short break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. We'll continue looking back at the watershed year of 1967 and some of the great recordings that changed the way we define the album from Pink Floyd, Love, and The Velvet Underground.
1: feeling
5: The hippies are capable of extremely hard work, even though they tend to approach work as the rest of us do sport. Some of them are very successful. Their concept of a new style of life unites them, and that concept is in most cases drawn from the drug experience.
3: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and today we celebrate the anniversary of 1967, the emergence of hippie culture, but also one of the most significant years in rock and roll. In a future episode, we're going to explore the impact of 67 on the live music experience and the way the industry learned to market and organize itself, but today it's all about the album. A number of recordings from 67 were pioneering when it came to the magic you could create in the studio and the artistic statement you could make with one vinyl LP. Greg, before the break, we were
4: talking about what is absolutely the most famous album released in 1967, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by the Beatles. It was a hit at the time, and it still remains one of the best-selling records of all time and the top entry on many critics and fans' lists of the all-time great albums. But we'll argue that it wasn't the most innovative record of the Beatles' career, nor was it the strongest record of 1967. If we're looking at that year as a turning point, considering the album as art, I'd steer us to another British album recorded right next door from the Beatles at Abbey Road, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn from Pink Floyd. We've talked about Pink Floyd on the show a lot. There are really two or three different Pink Floyds. We're talking about the first one that is led by Sid Barrett, a young, will-of-the-wisp, free spirit. You know, he's a poet. He wants to frolic in the daisies and meet gnomes and play with the deer, you know. This is very much in the air at this time. And the first single that they write, a loving homage to a similar type spirit who happens to be a transvestite named Arnold Lane, is produced by an American. Joe Boyd. I think there's a key event that epitomizes the spirit of what's happening in England April 29th to April 30th, overnight in the Alexandra Palace. That is that incredible glass-domed palace built during the reign of Queen Victoria in the center of London. There's an event called the 14-hour Technicolor Dream. And it's the coming-out party of the English psychedelic scene. The real pulse of it, the way that the events of Golden Gate Park or Haight-Ashbury were in America. You have John Lennon and Yoko Ono running around, Arthur Brown playing the Soft Machine, and two bands that made their debut at that club run by Joe Boyd called UFO, Tomorrow and the
6: Pink Floyd. I was running a club and it was called UFO or UFO. And it was kind of, you know, the family dog, psychedelic ballroom, you know, equivalent in London. It only lasted for about nine months, but it had a great run for a while. And the spring of 1967 was a very wonderful and interesting time because uh, you know the whole scene was changing so fast. And Tomorrow had been just a kind of pop group. But that spring, some of the groups started changing their chemical intake and their music started changing and it got more and more wacky and psychedelic. And Anyway, I heard them at a pop club called Blazes and, and invited them to play at UFO and the audience just loved them. And um, on... The night of June 30th, 1967, they played on this fantastic night where it was in the middle of the Stones bust and my partner, John Hopkins, had been arrested and sentenced to prison and there was this huge tension and clash going on. And Twink, who was the drummer of Tomorrow, led us out around in a kind of protest march through the center of London in the middle of the night (laughs) And then they got back. we got back to the club at 4.30 in the morning and they played the greatest set I ever heard at UFO. Mm. And it was just a great, great moment. But in retrospect, everything started to go downhill from there on. From that point so, on. And they, they sang this song called... Uh, their signature song was called My White Bicycle. And it was all about the provost in Amsterdam giving away these free bicycles to everybody in the city and painting them white. And by the end of 1967 of white bicycles in Amsterdam had mostly been stolen and repainted. It's a, a <laughs> bit of a heavy-handed metaphor.
1: Shines no light upon my face Through the darkness we still see My white bicycle and My white bicycle
3: This was an extraordinary run of shows in this nine-month period that you're talking about, Joe Boyd. Soft Machine played there. You had The Move playing there, The Crazy World of Arthur Brown, Denny Lane, The Pretty Things. Uncle Haram on the night that Whiter Shade of Pale was released. Pretty mm. extraordinary stuff. And, of course, Pink Floyd. Right. That alone, that would put you in the history books there, Joe. <laughs> you know, kind of at the ground floor of, of one of the greatest bands of all time, and UFO was kind of their home base. I mean, they went from basically a band that nobody knew about to a band that was about to emerge into superstar status with pretty much within that nine-month period, right? I mean, it was it was pretty oh, absolutely. sudden. Yeah, give us a sense of what UFO was like, the atmosphere inside that club, and then what was it like when Pink Floyd would perform there?
6: UFO was a basement, low ceilinged. Irish dance hall, wooden floor and some hallways off where they served soft drinks and things like that. And at 10, we opened at 10.30 and we shut at six in the morning when the subway started running. And freaks just poured down the stairway and <laughs> it was an incredible atmosphere. What happened was the Pink Floyd, I started producing the Pink Floyd and unfortunately, I just produced the one record because EMI then signed them and said uh, we want to, them to use our studios, our producers, et cetera, et cetera. But that record got on the radio and from that point on in March, late March of 67, UFO was swamped by people who had been drawn to what we were doing through Pink Floyd, through that record Arnold, Arnold Lane. Arnold Lane
2: You
3: Now, this was the height of the Sid Barrett era. Barrett obviously was in the band for a very short time, but he was the driving force in that band. Describe the dynamic of, of the band at the time when Barrett was in it. Well, Sid wrote all, all the songs. I mean, he um, he was a wonderful songwriter.
6: I mean, if you listen to those songs, they're so clever. They're so full of narrative drama and wordplay and sort of music hall songs almost, you know, very tuneful and witty. and And yet they were wonderful to use as a basis for improvisation. You know, the melodies they'd set off on these kind of spaceship excursions from what, you know, I kind of image in my mind as a the fertile green planet of Sid's melodic songs. And they go out on this spaceship, wandering around into the void, and then they'd return. And it was always very reassuring when they got back to the home planet, you'd know, when you hear the melody suddenly again and Sid would step up to the mic and sing. One of the things about the Floyd though was that they were very um, self-effacing in a way. On stage, they had this light show, all these blobs of purple and blue and green lights playing across the stage. So you couldn't really make out faces very clearly and they were all – my image of the Floyd on stage is they're all looking down at their instruments very seriously. No one was projecting much of a personality. But, mm-hmm. but Sid's personality shone through even that because he had these sort of sparkling dark eyes and he was very good looking and girls loved him. And, you know, he, he was quite a character. Even without trying, he became a kind of uh, iconic figure.
2: The black and green scarecrow, as everyone knows, stood with a bird on his hat and straw, everywhere he didn't care. He stood in a field where
1: body grows.
4: That was producer Joe Boyd talking to us from London in 2007 about the year 1967 and that incredible scene epitomized by the 14-hour Technicolor dream. Greg, why does The Piper at the Gates of Dawn endure as an influential rock album? And I maintain that it is way more influential in terms of bands drawing from it today than, I think, Sgt. Pepper's. But what did Piper at the Gates of Dawn produce? Well, we have countless indie rock songwriters who tried to capture that sort of willful naivete slash mystic savant quality of songwriter Sid Barrett, and we have an entire legion of sonic innovators who build on the guitar sounds that are on that first Pink Floyd album. Sid Barrett was an extraordinarily inventive guitarist using slide guitar Echo Plex, all sorts of weird approaches to playing these chords. You know, just listen to something like Astronomy Domine, this frightening tour of the cosmos that evokes the icy chill of water underground. Mm-hmm.
3: I think it's a great point, Jim, that this is a very influential record. You know, when you, when you think about Barrett, when he started this band, he named it after a couple of Georgia blues musicians, Pink Anderson and Floyd Council. There were a lot of blues rock bands in England at the time. What I think is significant about Piper is this transition into the progressive or space rock era? And you can literally hear them counting it in on Astronomy Domine. Yeah, the way their, it starts. Their manager at the time, Peter Jenner, is reading off the names of the stars and galaxies through a megaphone, and that's how the album starts. And it's like, here's space rock, kids. We're bringing you the new sound right now. <laughs>
4: There's a lot of what was in the air culturally at that time on The Piper at the Gates of Dawn. You know, everybody is turning to the I Ching, the ancient Chinese system for, you know, asserting a situation and divining the best course of action. Those are the lyrics to uh, Chapter 24. The title, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, comes from Kenneth Graham's The Wind in the Willows, okay? You know, so there are all these kind of references. Every hippie crash pad had these books <laughs> and, and these totems, and Barrett is soaking it all up. I want to
2: tell you a story. Story about a little man if I can a gnome named Grimble Crumble A little gnomes stay in their home.
4: Tragedy, Greg, of this album is of course that Barrett is simultaneously self-destructing as this great music is being made. He is embracing far too enthusiastically the abuse of psychedelic drugs, and he will, in fact, suffer a nervous breakdown before the making of the second Pink Floyd album. Piper at the Gates of Dawn is kind of his legacy. There are two solo albums, but they're sort of scattered. And, you know, he remains poster boy for the fact that the utopian ideals of the hippie
3: era had a dark underbelly if people were too excessive. That dark side of the summer of love existed in the States as well. And when we return after a quick break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, Jim and I are going to look at two great American releases from both sides of the continent. We also invite you to share your sound opinions on 1967. Call us at 888-859-1800. you're listening to Sound Opinions, I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and we are in the midst of the first of two parts in our look back at the year 1967, a watershed year for rock and roll. Now, Jim just talked about Piper at the Gates of Dawn, Pink Floyd's massive 1967 debut. Massive on, on a number of levels, a commercial success, but also incredibly influential. And I think that's the way we want to look at this work from that year. What is the stuff that has resonated the longest and had the greatest influence? Now, there was a ton of music that came out of that Summer of Love on the West Coast that year, and a lot of it hugely celebrated. New records by the Beach Boys, Buffalo Springfield, the Birds, the Doors. But for my money, Jim, the best record to come out of the West Coast in 1967 was Love's Forever Changes, the third album by this biracial hippie band with a really nasty edge and a really eccentric leader.
1: Yeah, who said it's all right? get. All the times I've waited patiently for you. And you do just what you choose to do. And i
3: Love was one of the first integrated rock groups led by this eccentric genius, Arthur Lee. He was a self-styled maverick, trying to be different from everyone else. He'd walk around L.A. with, you know, just one moccasin on, and he had these these weird triangle-shaped granny glasses that he would wear everywhere. He just looked like a total freak. But he was also an incredibly gifted musician, songwriter, arranger, producer. He could do it all. He had this vision for this band to separate them from every other band in L.A. at the time, and he pretty much succeeded. He also pretty much succeeded in putting them on the absolute fringe of the commercial spectrum so that nobody outside of L.A. really paid attention to these guys until they had already broken up. But meanwhile, he left behind three incredible albums right in a row there. The first two records came out in 66, and then Forever Changes in 67 was his masterpiece.
1: Life goes on here, day after day. I don't know if I am living or if I'm supposed to be. Sometimes my life is so eerie And if you think I'm happy Paint me
3: yellow this was a record that was a little bit different than those earlier love albums which were very punky almost setting a template for what would become punk rock a decade later there was a there was a loud violent edge to them there was also a certain nastiness in the lyrical content that made Janis Joplin remark when she first heard the band says they shouldn't be called love they should be called hate Arthur Lee wanted to play ball with his record company, deeply, deeply respected the man who signed him to Electra Records, Jack Holzman. Now, Holzman had signed a number of leading acts from the American Wave of Psychedelia to his fledgling label, including people like Paul Butterfield, The Stooges, The Doors. And he found love in 1965 while
5: searching for a breakthrough pop band. I was desperately looking for the kind of rock group that made sense in that, Uh, As I've said before, you could boogie and and feel that you were being intellectually stimulated at the same time. And I would go to all kinds of clubs. I was in Los Angeles, and I went through a list of the clubs in the local weekly free press newspaper, and I saw a group called Love, which I had never heard before. What an interesting name for a group. So I went there, and I went into this club that was like the black hole of Calcutta, (laughs) Uh, but with the wildest scene— girls with perfectly ironed hair dancing and Arthur standing on the stage looking through these prismatic sunglasses with one lens red and one lens uh, bluish green and uh, I heard hey Joe and my little red book and I heard some other very very unusual songs and I knew that I had found my bed and I had Arthur signed within four or five days I
1: found that right through my little red book and I went from A to Z. I took out every pretty girl in town. Oh, they danced with me. And as I held them, all I did was talk about you. Hear your name and I start to cry. Let's just no getting over you. Oh no.
5: The group was amazing and Arthur was one of the few true musical geniuses I have ever met. He was just terrific. He had one serious failing. He would not leave Los Angeles to tour or to work with the group. He only wanted to play in LA. So he turned down an opportunity to be at the Monterey Pop Festival. That was a shame because they would have been terrific there. Yeah. But we continued to work with Arthur through four albums and the third album was Love Forever Changes, which most people think is one of the top 20 rock and roll albums of all time, certainly one of the most influential.
1: And so the story ended Do yeah, you know it oh so well Well oh,
5: Arthur also did me one other gigantic favor. One night I was, I sort of went to the club to see him at what was 2 o'clock in the morning for me because I had just gotten off an airplane from New York. And he said, you ought to stick around for the other band. I think they're talented. And that other band was The Doors.
1: Come on, baby, like my fire. Come on, baby, like my fire. Try to the night on.
3: That was Jack Holzman speaking to us in 2011. And Jim, his label Electra was really at the forefront of the 60s, signing those risky artists and providing guidance to bands like The Doors and Love. So when he started working with Arthur Lee and the band, he suggested they move in a new direction. They began composing the songs for the album Forever Changes on acoustic guitars. They wanted to make more of a baroque folk pop record rather than a straight-ahead rock record. And the choices were more intentional, and as we've been saying, they wanted to treat the album as more of an art form. Plus, talk about using his studio as an instrument. They brought in a full orchestra in the studio to overlay strings and horns over these beautiful songs that Arthur Lee had written. Now, I say beautiful in that the melodies were fantastic, the vocals were, were lovely, but then you dig a little deeper about what are these songs actually saying? The vision that Arthur Lee was painting of the world at the time is uh, nothing less than horrific, Jim. I mean, we're talking about a house is not a motel. And the waters turn to blood, and if you don't think so, go turn on your tub.
1: By the time that I'm through singing The bells from the schools of walls will be ringing More confusions, blood transfusions The news today will be the movies for tomorrow And the water's turn to blood And if you don't think so Go turn on your tub And if it's mixed with mud You see it turn to grey Then you can call my name I
3: hear you calling this is not flower power, hippie generation. Let's all get together, people, and have a love in. This is about the world is swirling down the toilet right now, and I am commenting on this state of affairs. It is ugly out there, people. Here is a young person, a young black man, growing up in LA with the American dream in front of me. This is the vision of the world that I have. I think it's important to remember, as I said with the demise of Sid Barrett,
4: that there is good trip psychedelia Mm. and there is bad trip psychedelia. As far as the actual experience with the drugs, the word psychedelic was coined by Aldous Huxley, who uh, used roots from the Greek for soul-revealing or mind-manifesting, and he wrote a little rhyme so that we would know what psychedelic meant. (laughs) To fathom hell or soar angelic, take a pinch of psychedelic you got to remember the Fathom Hell part was part of things as much as the Soar Angelic, and I think that Love tapped into some of that. But really, the last album we're going to examine in this explosion of album as art, studio as instrument, is the epitome of bad trip psychedelia, in my mind. Mm-hmm. The debut by The Velvet Underground, The Velvet Underground, and Nico.
2: Sad.
3: Moving from California to New York, we have the Velvet Underground. Its members came together in the mid-60s with the eventual lineup including Lou Reed, John Cale, Sterling Morrison, and Maureen Tucker. For their official debut, they were joined by German singer and model, Nico. Here's the album that is best known for its cover art in some ways. The Andy Warhol image on the cover of that peelable yellow banana that on the original versions of the record, you could peel it away to reveal the pink banana beneath.
4: Well, you know, and famously, this album was a stiff. It did not sell nearly what people hoped. But many of the copies that were sold in the first few weeks was due to a myth that the banana underneath,
3: once you peeled it, had been doused in acid. (laughs) That's great. And and Warhol, I think he was manager and producer in quote marks. Really, what I think he gave the Velvet Underground was a canvas to paint their own art on without any interference from the outside world. So do your thing, guys and gals, and have fun. Well, more
4: than that, Greg, having the reigning artist of the day with his name on your cover said...
3: This is art. I endorse this, absolutely. Right. And and there was a great deal of controversy about whether it was art. Some people who reviewed the record viewed it as pornography, plain and simple. They thought it was completely outside the realm of, say, what the Beatles were doing. And it had nothing to do with great taste or elevating the human consciousness. It, it was not in the tradition of the great classical works or the great blues albums that had preceded it. It was pornography. And the reason for that was the subject matter, the melding of Lou Reed's literary sensibility with John Cale, the other half of that creative force at the top of the band, his avant-garde and classical musical sensibilities, giving rock a sound like it had never heard before. I'm
2: waiting for my man Six dollars in my hand. Up to Lexington, one, two, five. Feel sick and dirty, more dead than alive. I'm waiting for my man.
3: Now, Reed was coming at it from the approach that, yes, the world I see outside my window in lower Manhattan is full of drugs and sex and deviant sex and misfits and outsiders and and creepy street characters and at the same time he wasn't sensationalizing it so much as humanizing it he was empathizing with many of the figures that he was writing about in these songs and creating these kind of beautiful portraits of a side of society that most people never cared to look at with any sort of depth. And if they did, it was with horror that they ran away from it. Reed was putting a microscope on it and saying, look at this. These are part of our American landscape, too. I don't know
2: just where I'm going try for the kingdom if I can because it makes me feel like I'm a man when I put a spike in
3: Think of a song like heroin. You know, when you think about the so-called drug songs that had preceded it, a lot of them were almost tongue-in-cheek or comical or kind of jokey. Reed was taking a look at hard drugs and why someone would be motivated to take them, knowing how self-destructive they could be.
2: I'm gonna try My life, cause when the blood begins to flow, and it shoots up the dropper's neck, when I'm closing on death.
3: The guitarist in the band, Sterling Morrison, once said, You know, when I first heard the song, I thought it was clinical, almost nauseating. But he said, it drove me to think about what would drive a person to do this to themselves. As you listen to the song, again, we keep bringing up what was going on in the world at the time. And I think it was Lou Reed's way of looking at what was happening in the world and realizing that drugs were an escape from an inescapable reality. People have said something
4: like the end by the doors was the sound of what was happening in Vietnam, but really heroin is even more so. The thing that always strikes me, Greg, when I go back to that first Velvets album is how absolutely schizophrenic it is. Mm-hmm. You you have some songs like Sunday Morning and Femme Fatale which are just beautiful pop songs. They could have come from Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys.
2: Cause everybody knows the thing she does to please She's just a little tease See the way she walks Hear the way she wants.
4: And then you have stuff that, even now, 45 years on from 1967, sound as if it's the frightening music of the future. I mean, Black Angel's death song? Mm -hmm. What is that? European sun? It still makes no sense. Sonic Youth has tried to rewrite those two songs and make an entire 40-album career out of it,
3: and they still don't better what was done 45 years ago. That's the key, Jim. I think you could take each song on the Velvet Underground and Nico and not only see a host of bands coming out of every song, but individual movements. I mean, you go from, as you said pop in Sunday morning, R&B, and there she goes, experimental music and European Sun, the Berlin Cabaret of the Damned, you know, with that S&M song, <laughs> Venus and Furs, I'll Be Your mirror, a beautiful ballad. Each one of these songs inspired entire movements that have resonated decades later.
4: Well, Greg, I really think that's true of a lot of the music from 1967. That's why we're looking back at this year, 45 years down the road. People say today the album is dead nobody cares anymore they just download the songs they want We're not seeing that as true at all. You know, as critics, we're constantly getting albums from artists who had the goal, just like the Beatles did in 1967, of creating a grand conceptual statement, a work of art in the form of a collection of songs. The idea of going into the studio and recording sounds that will transport the listener somewhere they'd never be without that magic in the space between the headphones. Those ideals, those goals, are very much alive and well 45 years after they started in 1967. We're going to continue looking at this year in another show two weeks from now. But what do we have on the show next week, Greg? Next week, Jim, we're going to play songs that celebrate first love for Valentine's Day. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana, and Annie Minoff, And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori, Southside Malatia. He was listening to the fifth dimension in nineteen
1: sixty
2: seven. I look at my telephone book, I look at my telephone book, I can't stand away. Look, I hate to think away. Took me down to a burning rage. I wrote your name on everything. You don't return my call.
3: On sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say.
6: New messages.
0: Hi, guys. This is Greg from Chicago just calling to talk about the Village Voice music poll. I know best of lists are supposed to make people angry,
3: so I'd like to say nice job, Village Voice. Toonyard, the number one, I mean, it's different. It's kooky. I get it. The record of the year? No.
0: Then there's Jay-Z and Kanye at number three, which means a new category for you guys, a flush it
3: album. My album of the year is Punk and Poetry by the King Blues. It's a band from London with the soul of the clash, with a bunch of other energies thrown in, like the early Arctic Monkeys, Jamie T. The song is a little hand grenade about war, politics, fatherhood, sex, and the dual age. They're pissed off, but not preachy.
2: Well, outside on the street at 5 a.m., you know the world has a different face. And that dawn in the park as the sunbeams break, the drunks sing Amazing Grace. While the ladies of the night take flight as a big bright light comes crashing down. would well, you and I put the world to right in this forgotten little part of town.
0: 2011 was such a crazy year. World economy is falling apart, huge storms, the
3: Arab Spring... Most of the music on the top of that Village Voiceless sounded like it was made by people who
5: never left their basement.
2: Hi,
0: this is Cheryl Eskridge listening to you from KUT in Austin. And I just heard your piece on Leonard Cohen. Well, for those of us who are from the real era of Leonard Cohen, I would just like to say that anything he does has to be awesome because he has such a deep-hearted soul. As poor as the music might be, sometimes it's the thought that counts. Thank you. I had to go crazy. To
2: love you, you who were never the one whom I chased through the souvenir hardy, her braids and a blouse all undone. Sometimes I'd head for the highway, I'm old and the mirrors don't lie. Crazy has places to hide in that are deeper than any goodbye.
0: Hi, my name is Billy Sugarfix. I'm calling from Carborough, North Carolina. You had asked for people to call in with their memories of the 70s and Blondie. I grew up on a farm in rural Kentucky and really liked it there. One day, I was in the car with my sister, and for some reason, it had become her responsibility to tell me that the farm had been sold and that we were moving into town. And it was very devastating news. But on the radio was this song, which I eventually learned was "Heart of Glass" by Blondie. <laughs> this was the moment that everybody talks about where there was this one song that changed their life because, you know, even though I was very disappointed about leaving the chickens and cows behind, I knew that when I moved into town, music was sort of going to be my thing, and it sort of has been ever since. So thank you.